Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Last week, we learned that a federal judge refused to reinstate the social media site Parler after it was kicked off of Amazon's web hosting platform. This action, coupled with the banning of former President Donald Trump and others from Twitter and Facebook, have been described as a new front in the free speech wars. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later this hour, we'll talk about what so-called big tech is expecting from the Biden administration, and we'll hear about a new app called Clubhouse. But first, Gilad Edelman joins us to talk about the free speech debate that's playing out on social media and big tech platforms. He covers the intersection of technology and politics at Wired. Gilad, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. I want to get right into this because there is such a public discussion right now about social media, about free speech, and the intersections with politics and democracy. You wrote this article where you talk about the new front on the free speech wars after these companies like Apple and Google and Amazon ban certain apps and users. As a layperson, it feels like an unprecedented move, but perhaps it isn't. So walk our listeners through what's transpired, beginning with former President Trump being banned from these platforms to now what we're facing today. I, I, I agree with you that some unprecedented things are happening, but as you say, let's back up. So following the, the riot or attack at the Capitol on January 6th, we saw Facebook and Twitter and eventually YouTube suspend Donald Trump's accounts, something that people have long been wondering when, if ever, was this going to happen? Some people had been demanding it much sooner. Some people thought it was a bridge too far. And so here was the first, you know, already unprecedented thing. Uh, these companies have suspended foreign heads of state, but never the president of the United States. And the first thing to keep in mind is that what changed was not really how Trump was using any of these platforms. He was saying the same kind of stuff that he's been saying for a long time. What changed was what was happening in the real world, in the physical world, because you know, after months of pe- people warning that this, that peddling these false claims about a stolen election could lead to people taking matters into their own hands, finally we saw that actually happen. And so for the social media platforms, I think the decision all of a sudden became a lot easier um, because you could draw a really clear link between anything suggesting that the election had been stolen and real world violence and triggering real world violence is kind of one of the easiest calls to make for these companies. So so that was the first big dramatic step. Then what was really interesting is the decisions about what kind of speech to allow online, they migrated farther up the food chain because after Trump and many of Trump's most passionate supporters were deplatformed from the social media networks themselves, there was still this question of, well, what about the other social media networks like 
the most notably one called Parler, which was sort of like a, uh, it was kind of like a right-wing Twitter. Um, although it, it presented itself as nonpartisan and just pro free speech in a really radical way, really hands-off way. And so people started noticing, well, a lot of this content, you know, advocating for armed conflict and continuing to question the election results is just taking place in these other online spaces like Parler. And so then what happened is um, Apple, and let's just take the case of Parler, Apple and Google notified Parler that it didn't have strong enough content moderation policies uh, to be permitted in their app stores. And uh, it pretty swiftly, uh, pretty swiftly thereafter, both companies kicked Parler out of their app stores and Amazon kicked Parler off of its hosting services. And so you had now we had, we had already seen big uh, social media companies deciding which users were uh, in violation of their content policies. But now what we're seeing is the companies that sit on top of those social media networks saying, well, we're actually going to go in and kind of micromanage your content policies. So there are layers to this. There's layers to the activity. There's layers to the oversight. And let's talk about Parler as an example, since you mentioned it. It is not a new platform, although we're talking about it now. It's been around for a couple of years. Talk more about what makes Parler different from a platform like Twitter. You know, aside from the ideological tendency, what is it about the user experience or what was being posted on Parler that led to its prominence? The key difference between Parler and Twitter is that Twitter has a bunch of rules for what you are and are not allowed to tweet. And Parler has very few. Parler was born out of this sentiment that the mainstream platforms are discriminating against conservatives, basically. And so Parler was founded, you know, its mission statement was, well, we're going to be, we are going to be proudly free from this sort of censorship. And, and so what they said was our content policies are modeled after the First Amendment. So the First Amendment limits what the government can do, right? The First Amendment protects free speech against the government. But Parler said, we're going to basically pretend like we're government. So we're going to sort of hold ourselves to the same standard as the First Amendment. And the thing is, the First Amendment allows a lot of stuff that other social media companies don't. So in the really early days of the internet, it was anything goes. But in recent years, all the major platforms like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you know, they have policies against stuff like hate speech, for example. Well, hate speech is actually, it's, it's legal in America. You know, as, as, as easy as that is to forget, the First Amendment does not, does not like let the government police racists, basically. And so Parler said, well, then neither are we. We're going to trust our, you know, community, community to have open debate uh, in this total free speech zone. And it's interesting, I think you hit on a really key point. Parler had been around since 2018. So one kind of weird thing about these, about Apple, Google, and Amazon suddenly kicking it off was that its policies were out there in the open the whole time. And so if they were violating the app store's policies, for example, 
you do have to wonder, well, then why did the companies just not do anything about that for more than two years? There's always this confusion around the First Amendment and free speech, and and you hit on it, that the First Amendment is usually about what government can do and how government can sanction your speech or what the expectation is. But it has become such a ubiquitous phrase that anytime someone says something that we don't like or that there's a response to, free speech gets thrown out there. And we're learning now that just last week, a federal judge has decided not to force Amazon to restore Parler to its platform. What are the implications of that, of having a federal judge say, if you are not abiding by this or, you know, removing things that incite violence, this action can happen? Well, I think so. So what happened was after Amazon kicked Parler off of its hosting service, Parler sued Amazon to to force it to, to, to take it back. And I think any lawyer would have told you that Parler was gonna fail. And, and, and part of that has nothing to do with social media or technology. Suppose somebody breaks a deal with you. It's really hard to get a judge to make them do the deal. So like if you hire me to, to mow your lawn and I don't, you can't sue to make me mow your lawn. Maybe you could get money from me. Like maybe you could get me to pay for the replacement lawnmower. So it was never going to happen that a judge forced Amazon to take Parler back. The best Parler could have hoped for was some money from Amazon, which is also not going to happen. And we should say that that Parler did find um, new hosting from a Russian-based company, which of course will make eyebrows raise all across the country. Um, But they're, they're not back in the app stores. And that's kind of like a death sentence in 2021, you know, if you're just on desktop and mobile browser and you want to have any kind of presence as a social network, you, you know, you're kind of screwed. You really need to have the the mobile app experience. What's the incentive then? If it was sort of a done deal when the lawsuit was first filed and, and understanding that we have a very litigious society, what's the end game for Parler? I don't know. I, I, I can't pretend to get inside their heads. But having said that, I got inside their heads a little bit. Um, not about this lawsuit, but before everything went down at the Capitol, in fact, the day before, I talked to the chief operating officer at Parler. And um, they have strongly held beliefs. And some of those are beliefs about the law. And some of them are wrong, but they are strongly held. And it's, I think it is a company that has a pretty deep sense of mission, of uh, sort of free speech libertarianism. And it's a mission that is pretty off-putting to a lot of people, but I think it's, it is one that they take seriously. The question that keeps coming up for me is why now? As you said, there have been complaints and calls for greater moderation or intervention for the last few years. We saw it after the shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. We heard it after shootings in El Paso, after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, where people were able to not just express their grievance and discontent, but strategize and mobilize for action that led to these deadly results. What is different now than what we've witnessed over the last three years. Because I think for many people, this is bigger than just Donald Trump 
or just bigger than having a president use those platforms as his bully pulpit? It is bigger than Donald Trump, but we also can't, it might not be that much bigger than Donald Trump. And by that, I mean, having a president who was one of the most important purveyors of false content on the internet uh, on deeply charged issues for four years posed a really enormous challenge to these companies. To your question of why now, I mean, the answer is because of what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. That's, that's why now. If, if the, I've, I've thought about this a lot. If, if the Capitol Police had been better prepared or if there had already been National Guard uh, in, in place and people had just never managed to, to breach them and cause physical uh, violence... I don't think any of this other stuff would have happened. I think everything we're seeing in the online world is a ripple effect of what happened in the offline world. The, you know, when you think about, it's easy to look back and say, well, these companies should have taken down all this rigged election, stop the steal stuff sooner. And by the way, they, they, you know, they, they did try to take some action against this. So, but you could say, well, they, they didn't go hard enough. They should have banned Trump from the start, but it is a really delicate thing when, you know, there's, there's two political parties in the United States. And when one of them is kind of all in on really egregious lies, it's, it poses a big challenge to a company because you, you have to be, as, as I like to beat up on these companies as much as anybody, but at the same time, you, you do have to be sympathetic to their desire to not alienate or turn their back on you know, a huge, you know, not, not half the country because half the country doesn't believe um, the election was stolen, but, you know, 30, 35% is a lot of people. And, you know, once you, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has often said he doesn't want to be the arbiter of truth online, and that can get a little exhausting to hear. But at the same time, once you start weighing in on which, because look, politicians lie. Politicians lie. Your favorite politician lies. Okay. Um, and you, the, the deeper a company gets into which lies are okay and which are not, the, the stickier situation they find themselves in. Coming up, we'll continue our conversation with Gilad Edelman, who covers the intersection of technology and politics at Wired. And we'll hear about how the Clubhouse app is bringing artists together. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We're talking with Gilad Edelman, who covers the intersection of technology and politics at Wired. He's been writing about free speech issues around Twitter, Parler, and big tech giants like Amazon, Google, and Apple. I asked him about the implications of removing these public spaces where people are engaging in contentious and sometimes hateful speech. If it's not happening out in the open, how do we prevent the violent actions that may be planned in these online spaces? This is an ongoing debate, and there are people who come out on either side of it in the in the community of people who study extremism. You know, not not just people who study online platforms, but you know, terrorism experts. There's there's long been this debate about okay, here's the trade off: if you kick people, whether it's 
whether it's QAnon, whether it's ISIS, you know, if, if you kick white supremacists, um, if you kick them off the mainstream platforms, mainstream ways of getting the message out, you, well, you make it harder to get the message out, right? They, they, they lose an audience and it, uh, it makes it harder to recruit and things like that, propagandize. However, you, you push them into harder to, to find places, you increase the uptake of encrypted communication technology, and so you make things harder for law enforcement. And we're, we're seeing that right now. Um, there's been a lot of reports about white supremacists who were kind of operating pretty brazenly um, in, in, pretty, in, in spaces that were pretty easy for law enforcement to monitor. They're gravitating towards encrypted platforms. So there is a trade-off there. And, but, but one way to think about it is, what do we think is the bigger problem facing our society right now? Do we think it's do we think it is violent radicals or insurrectionists plotting specific acts of terror or violence? Or do we think it is the kind of mass dissemination of false, divisive, uh, you know, dangerously misleading information to a wide audience? You know, people can debate that question. I kind of think it's the latter. You know, I don't, I don't want to downplay um, the, the very real threat of, of uh, right-wing terrorism in this country, but it does seem true that deplatforming accomplishes a lot. It gets, you know, gets us a long way towards stopping the spread of lies that really are you know, ripping apart the, the fabric of the country. Now that, of course, raises, that doesn't really settle the issue because then you have to, you, you're still left with this question of, well, who should get to make these decisions? And that's what's, that's what's so weird about these calls is you can agree with the particular call. You might say, yeah, you know what, in, the, in that context, it made sense to shut down Donald Trump, but you can still think it's weird that a handful of companies of super powerful companies get to make such consequential decisions. Well, let's talk about how that handful of powerful companies is even making that decision. So Facebook announced that it would be referring Trump's suspension to this oversight board, which is this independent global body of freedom of expression experts. I didn't know this existed until this announcement came out. What does this mean that we have now said that for this powerful company, they will then defer to this body that, again, most people don't know exist, and then that will determine? Because I think that the dual challenge here is what is the physical threat that may fester in these spaces, but also what is the threat to how we envision democracy as this exchange of ideas, even when we don't agree with them? Talk to us about that board and, and what it means for it to be involved in this case. It's actually funny to hear that you hadn't heard of it until now, because in my world and in, in my little niche of covering tech and, and politics issues, people have been very eager. There's been a lot of discussion about this board and people have been kind of eager, eager to see it actually take shape. So to, to back up just a little bit, I can't, I can't put an exact date on it, but, but some time ago, last couple of years, Facebook announced that they were creating this oversight board. And it took a long time between announcing its creation 
and it actually coming into existence. So it only came together late last year. And what the oversight board is set up to do is handle, it's kind of like a Supreme Court for Facebook where they will consider appeals when Facebook takes content down. Now, they're not gonna consider appeals when Facebook leaves content up. So they're, they're only, they're, they're, their mandate is to second guess decisions that Facebook makes to take content down. And in nominally, the oversight board is independent. So it's, it's set up in such a way where Mark Zuckerberg has said, you know, we, Facebook is bound by these decisions. Um, what that means is in the case, so in the case of Donald Trump, uh, as you say, last week, Facebook announced that it was referring its decision to, to suspend Trump's account to its oversight board. So a lot of people are suddenly going to be familiar with this oversight board. Um, they are taking on a big one. And so what this means is if the oversight board says Facebook was wrong to suspend Trump's account, Facebook will have to reinstate Trump's account. Um, now, Facebook has also asked the oversight board to, to give its thoughts on the, the, the thinking, the reasoning that Facebook used. But the, whatever, it says, whatever the oversight board says there is not binding. The only thing that's actually binding is leave them up, take them down. And if you're thinking this sounds like a way for Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg to sort of shift responsibility for these decisions off of themselves, that is what it is. And just for clarification, I imagine this board would hear sort of bigger figures in this question, not, you know, my friend from high school who likes to post conspiracies about COVID-19 and 5G. So is that true that they are looking at these bigger, more influential users and posts or who's being referred to this board? That's a great question. They haven't been up for that up and running for that long. And, um, but, but no, it's not just famous people. Um, it's the, the, the board gets to decide what cases they take. And I think they're trying to take cases that get at some of the hard questions about how some of these, these rules should work, not just in the United States, but around the world. So let's talk about where we are now. We have a new administration. We have an administration in the White House that has said that it will connect to these issues and think about the impact of these issues on democracy, but really about conversation and engagement. And in former President Trump's last few months, he really focused on Section 230, which many people have said needs to be reconsidered. And there seems to be a bipartisan interest in reviewing Section 230. Tell our listeners what that provision says. And do you think it's time to reconsider what it does? Section 230 is part of a law that was passed in 1996 called the Communications Decency Act, Act which, which was itself part of a even broader telecommunications law that was passed. And the funny thing is that the most of the Communications Decency Act, which is all about outlawing offensive stuff sent, made available to minors online, got struck down under First Amendment grounds. But this one part of it, Section 230, stuck around. And what Section 230 does is it says, Section 230 has two parts. 
The first part says <clears throat> that companies are not legally liable for stuff that users post. So th you know, this was passed in like the message board days, but it still applies to any website that has user-generated content. They're not legally liable for that user-generated content. And then the second part of the law says that companies are free to moderate that content if they so choose. It was called a Good Samaritan law because at the time there was a worry that companies would um, either be completely hands-off or that once they started trying to clean up their platforms, that would open the door to getting sued for not doing a good enough job. So what Section 230 does is it says, don't worry, you can try to keep things clean and, and impose some rules here that won't then make you liable if, if something slips through the cracks. So that law was not really a household name for the first 20 years of its existence. But there were, you know, within this small group of internet law nerds, it was credited as this amazing thing that allowed the American tech sector to innovate and grow and not be uh, you know, subject to crippling lawsuits. But in recent years, it's come under scrutiny because people have started to ask, is it really such a good thing for these companies to have legal immunity for what their users post? People are particularly questioning its application to big social media platforms because these are companies that make their money by hosting user-generated content. And so there's a question of, well, if this is how they make their money, is it really fair that they're not responsible for the costs of that in the form of you know holding legal liability? But here's what's really weird about the debate in Washington about Section 230. Here's what's really weird. Democrats hate the first part of the law and Republicans hate the second part of the law. So, de so Democrats, this is an oversimplification, but Democrats tend to get mad that social media companies don't face any liability, even for the most objectionable stuff. So they, in, in other words, they want companies to have more pressure to take stuff down. Republicans get pissed that social media companies are allowed to take stuff down. So they want these companies to leave more stuff up. So given that, given these diametrically opposed complaints, it's hard to see the two parties coming together on any really deep change to the law since they have the opposite, they basically want opposite things. There, there are some proposals with some bipartisan support that, that nibble around the edges or that try to use Section 230 to accomplish other goals by saying, hey, internet companies, you have to, if you don't do a better job at helping law enforcement with child sex trafficking, for example, we'll take Section 230 away from you. So there's this idea that, oh, this law has been good for these companies, so let's try to use it as a carrot to get them to do other stuff. Even using the phrase big tech often has a partisan slant to it, where some people say it's an, an opportunity to increase access and engagement, and others use it in this pejorative sense of these companies just deciding what the conversation will be. If the Biden administration called you today and said, Gilad, what is it that we need to be addressing? What is it that is sort of the, the area that's not being properly addressed when it comes to this intersection of technology and politics? What would you say? I would say data privacy. So that's one that we actually haven't talked about yet. 
I think that, um, and, and this is, a, this is a, a space where we might see action from Congress. I say might because you can't get your hopes up too much uh, for, for anything in Congress, but um, you know, underlying a lot of these conversations, um, underlying it so much that people sometimes overlook it, is how do these companies make money? And in the case of Facebook and Google, they make their money by selling micro-targeted ads that rely on tracking everything people do online and offline, uh, you know, where they take their devices, not just what websites they, they visit. And using that data uh, to, uh, to target ads to people. And that approach to making money, you know, leads to a lot of the other problematic ways that these companies do business. And so I think, and, and it has all these big ripple effects. It's not just about Google knows if you're pregnant before you do. It's also, you know, it affects the news ecosystem. It affects the way that, um, you know, the way that the platforms are kind of optimized for certain kinds of engagement. And so if there was one thing that I would want government to do, it'd be to, really take a hard look at cracking down on this particular business model. We have to have you back on a future show because <laughs> I, I feel like I have learned so much from this. But again, these are things that we encounter every day, but we don't think about the implications and how it connects us in ways that we may not want. But how do we use that to disrupt some of the instability that we're seeing? Gilad Edelman covers the intersection of technology and politics at Wired. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Coming up, we'll talk about a new invite-only app that's getting a lot of attention. It's called Clubhouse. Stay with us. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. If you've heard about Clubhouse, the drop-in audio app, then you know that it's invite-only and popular with celebrities and musicians. It was launched back in April, and it's caused some controversy because it's been slow to implement guidelines and rules around speech moderation. Our next guest has written about some of the criticisms of Clubhouse and how it's becoming a valuable community for Black creatives. Salvador Rodriguez is CNBC technology reporter covering Facebook and social media. I asked him to tell us more about this new app and what it's all about. Clubhouse is kind of the talk of the town in Silicon Valley in terms of the new hot social app. And they've definitely stolen a page from Instagram's playbook in terms of building that excitement. Um, I'm not sure if you remember, but back in 2012, before Facebook bought Instagram, you know, that app was exclusively on the iPhone and that kind of built up the fever pitch for it. Um, and now we're seeing Clubhouse do the same. It's only for uh, not even iOS users. Like if you, if you have an iPad, that's not gonna cut it. You have to have an iPhone and it's growing from there. But once you get into the app, it's basically a bunch of virtual rooms, virtual chat rooms, if you will, where people are having audio conversations about all sorts of things. Sometimes they might be talking about really tech heavy topics like Bitcoin. They might be talking about the news of the day. So what's going on in politics, 
or they might be uh, just uh, chatting about sports and what's happening in the NBA. So it's all sorts of stuff and it's audio only. So the, the notion of it being audio only seems quite different from the obsession with images that we see on other platforms like Instagram. Because it is exclusive, because as you said, it's an, an invitation app, how many people are using Clubhouse? Well, the company hasn't put out an exact number just yet, but based on some of the companies that track these sorts of things, we do have a pretty good sense that there have been more than a million installs of the app. And based on what we're seeing, I mean, it looks pretty active. Back when this was uh, even more exclusive and, and just in like a test mode, wasn't even on the app store, there might've been one or two virtual rooms open a day. And now there are way more rooms than that. I mean, if you have the app and I have the app, the rooms that we'll see are different and they're based on the folks in our network. So based on who we follow, what topics we've indicated that we're interested in, and there's always at least something like a dozen virtual rooms happening. Um, but yeah, it is quite different from some of the other apps that we're used to. Obviously, TikTok is video heavy, Snapchat video, Instagram, uh, you know, photos and videos. And with Clubhouse going the complete other way around and focusing on audio, what they're really tapping into isn't kind of the fact that you're making contact, but content, but rather that you can have, you know, you can, you can be somewhere in real time with other folks. So it's in, in my mind, it almost feels like going to a bar or going to a conference and everyone is there at the same time. And that's kind of the draw of it. During this pandemic, when so many of us are socially isolated or quarantining, this idea that people can come together across interests and ideas is really appealing. But Clubhouse has also gained this popularity among celebrities and creatives. Why do you think famous people are so excited about this new app? I think celebrities are always looking for new ways to connect with their followers and their fans. I mean, if you take it, you know, real far back, uh, you know, people would be excited to be the president of this artist's fan club or that artist's fan club. And typically their manager would, you know, have some sort of association with that person and the club. So this is like, it's, it's a tried and true idea. And we've certainly seen it play out on Twitter. You know, we saw it play out on Snapchat. And even on the app Cameo, where, you know, folks can pay to have you make a, a custom video. Uh, and so on Clubhouse, we do see that sort of thing as well. I know that lately when I open the app, um, 21 Savage is very often um, in there doing his thing. Um, and it's not, they're not always the most talkative folks, but, um, you know, if, if you're someone who, who's a big fan, you're certainly going to be drawn in by the fact that, someone like him might be in there. Or I know that uh, Jared Leto, the actor and singer, he's also been known to use the app. And I believe uh, comedian Kevin Hart, the, the anecdote that I was told is that someone made a room called, is Kevin Hart actually funny? And apparently this got back to him and he decided to hop in there and uh, defend himself. <laughs> so let's talk about that Kevin Hart example, because when I first really heard about Clubhouse, and this is still a relatively new app, when I first heard of it, it was about controversy. It was about, you know, Kevin Hart popping into this room, 
but a lot of the chatter that seemed to reify some of the worst parts of our social interaction, of people making allegations of bullying against certain users, or people who presented views that were counter to the mood in the room, then being the target of sexist comments or racist comments. How does the app manage that? Or or how does the Clubhouse community manage that? The same thing that we've seen in other social media platforms, but having the anonymity of being voice only, do you think it creates an environment for that? I think that Clubhouse does suffer from many of the same issues that we see on other social apps. And their disadvantage is that they're less than a year old. I mean, this launched in a test mode back in uh, March of 2020. So unlike uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just apps that have been around longer and have established more moderation tools, yet still have their own problems, Clubhouse is in the early stages of that and really just having to figure out how they go about that. And certainly, you know, in this particular story that I wrote about just the contributions that the online black community has had to this app, you know, I was made aware that, you know, there are issues on the app in regards to just conversations that occur or maybe comments that are made, uh, you know, with race, uh, racism, sexism, homophobia, all those types of things. And I think the app um, and the community are still figuring out, you know, how do you keep this off of there or maybe how do you moderate for it? Um, but it's, it's the early stages. And, and even another, another issue, you know, besides, you know, harassment problems, uh, another problem that people are talking about quite a bit is nowadays when you open the app, you might see a room in there about like, here's how I, you know, made six figures in uh, in six months. Just your tried and true, you know, scam, which in which is a bit of a double-edged sword for these type of apps because you don't want scams on your platform. However, once the scammers get on, it's kind of kind of a sign that you've made it. You know, so that's that's essentially the next challenge for Clubhouse is is cleaning up and making sure that they keep a healthy service going. There is a lot of conversation happening in the United States right now about who can be on these platforms and moderating content, but also regulating behavior. And certainly we heard that a lot when Parler was dropped by the various companies and servers. But for a newer app, as you said, like Clubhouse, where it's still figuring out what it wants to be and what the community wants to be and the conversations that are taking place there. What are the things in Clubhouse, what are the rooms that appeal to you or that you would say are the most interesting or most popular? I think for me, the ones that appeal are are the ones that are later at night when people are really just kind of trying to recreate what they would do um, pre-pandemic on a weekend. So when people are just kind of goofing around, being silly, like sometimes there's like comedy club type rooms. Other times there's rooms like shoot your shot if you're a single person. Um, And then other times there's just folks who are uh, playing audio. I remember uh, uh, maybe two or so weekends ago, Um, There was a DJ who it seemed like he had gotten a hold of an early release of the upcoming Drake album. And so he was just streaming it. And now whether or not, you know, what are the laws there in terms of copyright? I'm not the person to ask. However, that album did sound pretty great. And it was really cool 
feeling like you were um, almost like at a listening party that you would find in LA and could only get into if you, you know, knew the right people. So I'm, I'm drawn into that. However, there are also like really interesting conversations. I know that um, a few days ago, there was a talk about like, you know, how do you fix San Francisco? And the, the whole tech community was in there talking about that. Um, so you get those kinds of conversations. Um, and it's, it's still the fact that the app is so young. Um, it just has that feeling of, of almost like the wild west, like kind of like when I was a kid going on the internet and just, you know, you open up uh, Napster or LimeWire, or you, you know, go to those early video sites that even predated YouTube. It's just kind of like, you never know what's going to be happening in those apps because it's so raw and unregulated. I have to say, you just brought back so many great memories by mentioning Napster and LimeWire. And it also speaks to how technology is constantly evolving and changing. So when I was a teenager, it was, you know, party lines where you would get on a phone line and be able to talk to people all over. But it was the idea that you could connect on something simple or something more complex, but on your own terms. When you think about Clubhouse and its popularity now and how there is this exclusive nature of it, that you have to have a membership, but you can have these conversations with people across, how will Clubhouse maintain that feeling? Everyone likes to feel like they are the ones who can make it beyond the velvet rope and be in VIP. But as this takes off and gets more popular, how are they going to maintain that same thrill? I think there are always ways to uh, offer to consumers that feeling of exclusivity if that's what they want. I think a perfect example of that is just look at the airlines. You know, there's always another class that you can bump yourself up to. And I think even within Clubhouse, we're gonna, we're already seeing that a little bit. I know that there are clubs within Clubhouse and you can't necessarily just get into all of them. So we'll probably see that develop. But it'll also be a question of what does Clubhouse itself want to become? Because if you want to be uh, focused on exclusivity, then you also are giving up scale. Um, and we certainly saw that play out with Facebook. That was its first, that was its initial draw. But ultimately, they decided that they wanted to be the social network as opposed to be the social network you want to be at. And so that's that's a type of decision that Clubhouse will make. However, I think that the opportunity that they will find in just broadly expanding and letting everybody in would probably outweigh um, the uh, the alternatives. However, eventually they're going to have to start thinking about monetizing. You know, how do you make money out of this? Is advertisements going to be the right way to do that? Or will there be other uh, methods that make more sense? You know, with, with something that is live and essentially streaming, maybe models that are more akin to that of Twitch, the streaming service, might make more sense. So we'll, we'll see how they, uh, how they work all that out. But it, it's just exciting, though, because I know that a lot of the folks that are hopping on there now are doing so almost in a way where they kind of want to become the influencers of Clubhouse and make their own businesses out of this, just like we've seen folks do with TikTok or YouTube or even Vine back in the day. So it's, it's still very early on. So Sal, I have to say that I now feel infinitely cooler having talked to you and having a better sense of what Clubhouse is and how it works. But really, 
the innovation that's happening in multiple spaces and always understanding that the disruptions that come out of technology can actually bring people together. So thank you for helping me with that. Uh, Salvador Rodriguez is a CNBC technology reporter covering Facebook and social media. Thank you so much for joining us, Sal. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We wanted to know who has access to Clubhouse here in Connecticut, and we found an artist and small business owner. Ave Rivera is from West Haven, Connecticut, and when we spoke, she'd only been on the app for five days. So I heard about it through um, a few different YouTube channels that I follow, and uh, it's a lot about networking and marketing. So, of course, I was interested owning my own business. I was just like... Let me see what this is about. And I actually received my invitation from another small business. Um, Her name is Lauren. She is a makeup artist. Uh, I think her page is uh, LA Page Makeup, if anyone wants to know. Um, But once you gain access, it's basically like town halls and different conversations happening. And you get to participate. So it's almost like you're listening to your favorite topical podcast and you get to talk to the to the hosts. So what's your experience been on the app then? So you you know you talked about the connection to another small business owner, this idea of being able to have conversation. What is it that mm-hmm. draws you in to Clubhouse? Well, I work full-time from home by myself. <laughs> so uh, especially now, connection has been pretty important to me. And finding a way to network with other like-minded people or just to have um, access to a conversation at any moment is very appealing. And especially when it's something that you're interested in, because there's a whole bunch of different topics that they have on the site. You know, we've talked a lot about how this pandemic means that we are socially isolated. As you said, we spend a lot of time in our homes with the people that we may share that space with. And there's always this push to figure out how we can be socially connected, even as we Mm -hmm. isolate to protect ourselves. As an artist and as a small business owner, how has that helped you? One side of my business that I've been trying to grow is uh, like a YouTube channel, right? So it has left a lot of little inspirational nuggets on how can I grow that side of my business. And um, one of the latest conversations that I took part of was about the power of giving and um, how you can grow your business through giving and how that, you know, builds up a community more of like a rising tide lifts all boats mentality. Is there a Connecticut community on Clubhouse or, you know, it is only four or five days into your experience. Is there a community there or do you see the potential to build a Connecticut community for Clubhouse? There's definitely a potential to build one. I haven't come across one yet. The search um, functionalities are a bit limited, I think, for safety reasons. Um, But there's definitely a possibility to either start one or hopefully I stumble across a a Connecticut group because I do love local groups. Is there a particular room that you enjoy or do you just go across all of your interests? 
the one I've been spending the most time in is there's one just called Artist Lounge. And there is artists from all over the globe talking about their experiences and how are they finding gallery shows. There was a few artists from Dubai that tuned in and they were talking about their experiences out that way. And I mean, it's just wild that it's just like a global community of artists who get to talk in real time and meet new people. It's still kind of wild to me. Thanks to Ave Rivera. You can find her work at AveRiveraStudio.com and we'll have a link at our website as well, ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tularski. Maybe we'll catch her in the clubhouse. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.